Well, if you would, uh, turn with me to the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 today. Um, A couple weeks ago, the Music and Worship Commission had a meeting, and we determined in that meeting that we wanted to do as many Christmas carols as possible uh, during the month of December, during the Advent season. And so when David asked me to preach uh, here in the first week of December, I thought, I better do an Advent, (laughs) something about uh, the Christmas story. Um, So here we are. I have, you know, as I go through my week, you know, I try and listen to podcasts and sermons and read as much as I can and just take in all the stuff and, and so take in all, all kinds of teaching and, and I have so much that I wanted to talk about and I just, I was kind of drawn to this passage. Um, a few years ago, I had a real change of heart when it comes to the Christmas season uh, I used to really approach this season as, as a Grinch, and I actually reveled in that uh, because of, I don't know, the commercialism or what, I just had a terrible attitude, I guess. But I just, uh, you know, that's problematic being a pastor <laughs> because Advent is a huge season, and so one of the things I started to do, which I carry with me today, is each year I try and just, I don't really tell anyone or announce it, but I just kind of put in my mind uh, a phrase from maybe a Christmas carol or from the, 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 the Christmas narrative in Scripture, and I just kind of carry that with me, and that really helps me to keep me in the spirit, the Christmas spirit. This year, uh, my phrase comes from verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute, um, because there's, there's such significance in that, in that phrase there. But let us, uh, let us read together Luke chapter, four, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 4 and go through verse 14. And, uh, and, and we'll dive into this. So follow along with me. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, there's so much packed into just these ten verses And as I said, I want to focus on verse 14, the two phrases here in verse 14. But there's so much packed in these 10 verses that we got to go through just to get the context. But I have to warn you, we got to go through this quick 
because otherwise we're going to get caught up in this because there's so much good material and so many good details. But allow me just to, to give a brief few. So Joseph, who is of the line of David, because of this census that the Roman Empire is putting on, he has to travel with his betrothed, who is pregnant, with the Son of God uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he has to travel with her to Bethlehem uh, because that's where he's from. They have to register uh, in their hometown. And so they get to Bethlehem. And, you know, this translation here in uh, verse 7 is, is really unfortunate when it says there's no place for them in the inn. You know, if he was going to Bethlehem because that's where his family is from, it's a good, it stands to reason that he probably had family in Bethlehem that they would stay with. Now, when it says there was no room for him, for them in the inn, I think what really what the story and Luke and the original Greek is trying to get at is that the place that they were staying there would have been what we would call an upper chamber or an upper room, maybe we could even use the word bridal suite, that would have been reserved for them because they were betrothed. However, because of the scandalous nature of their betrothal and her being pregnant, I don't think that would have been available to them, even if they were staying with family. Now, all of this that I'm getting, this is not just speculation. This, most of this is coming from an article that I read by Dr. Glenn Sunshine, who kind of dug into this, these verses. And part of what, what he said that I found interesting is that there's a lot more Old Testament theological significance to the birth of Christ. And again, I wish we had time to go deep, deep into it, but let me just kind of skate over it. Uh, the shepherds that we see in verse 8, we tend to look at them as kind of this ragtag, dirty bunch that just happens to be in a field outside of Bethlehem. But there's a good chance that these shepherds were actually of the Levitical priesthood, a branch of the, of the Levitical priesthood. That the flock that they would have been tending were the lambs that were intended for the morning and evening sacrifices in the temple. If you remember in Exodus chapter 29, and also it's mentioned in the book of Numbers, there had to be a sacrifice in the tabernacle and in the temple every morning and every night. Now, I'm not good at math, but that's one, two lambs. Every day, seven days a week, that's 14. One of those days happens to be a Sabbath day, and there were even more sacrifices that were required on the Sabbath day. So we have 14 plus lambs that needed to be slaughtered every week in the temple according to the Jewish tradition. So the temple had to have on hand a ready supply of lambs to bring in for these sacrifices. So these shepherds were not just a dirty ragtag bunch it's very likely that these shepherds that the angel spoke to would have been part of the Levitical priesthood. William Barclay, in his commentary on the book of Luke, says this, But these were, in all likelihood, very special shepherds. We have already seen how in the temple, morning and evening, an unblemished lamb was offered as a sacrifice to God. To see that that supply of perfect offerings was always available, the temple authorities had their own private sheep flocks. 
And we know that these flocks were pastured near Bethlehem. It is most likely that these shepherds were in charge of the flocks from which the temple offerings were chosen. He goes on to say, It's a lovely thought that the shepherds who looked after the temple lambs were the first to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know, I couldn't agree with him more. I think that that's really cool. Uh, One of the things I've always wondered about is why swaddling clothes and, and a manger? Well, as I said, going back to Mary and Joseph, if there was no room for them in the inn or the upper chamber or whatever we want to call it, they would have had to have found a place that was clean for her to give birth. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but giving birth, you kind of need a clean place from what I've been told. And so it's very likely that the place that Mary and Joseph found would have been one of the ceremonially clean caves that they, the shepherds used to birth these lambs. Because once they had a perfect, unblemished lamb, they had to make sure that that perfect, unblemished lamb stayed perfect and unblemished in order for it to be a sacrifice in the temple. And so they would take the lamb once it was born, inspect it, find that it was perfect, and the shepherds would wrap it in swaddling clothes and put it in a manger. And so when the angel tells these shepherds, the sign for you, for what was the word he used here? The Savior, who is Christ the Lord, the sign for you is going to be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So this would have had massive significance for these shepherds. I don't think they would have came to the cave and been like, oh, that's kind of a coincidence, especially after what the angel had said to them. I think that's pretty cool. So the angels say to them, you will find a savior, which by the way, in the Greek culture, the Hellenistic culture in which uh, Jesus was born into, uh, savior was a pretty common term. Doctors were saviors. Lawyers were saviors. Anyone who would be able to save you from any kind of gnarly situation was considered a savior. But the angel specifically says, unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior. Who is Christ the Lord? So this is the Savior of all saviors. The Savior who has come to save every other Savior. And they say, this will be a sign for you. will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. We talked about that already. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, Peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know, the Bible talks a lot about the glory of God or glory going to God or God doing things for his glory. But this is the only instance that I could find where it talks about glory to God in the highest. So, what's the difference? What's the significance? This encounter, this, this account that we are reading here, is the beginning of the crescendo 
of the redemptive story that God has been writing since the beginning of time. The coming of the Messiah, the Savior who comes to bring salvation to the whole world. You know, as we read through the Old Testament, we read the Abrahamic covenant and, and, and the, the, the lineage that comes down through the Jewish, where the Jewish people came down uh, in Isaac, in Jacob, and then in Joseph going to Egypt and saving his family from starvation, preserving the promised seed which was in his brother Judah, and then Moses, the covenant with Moses at Sinai, and the people of Israel, the Davidic line, the covenant bringing, uh, saying that there's going to be a Savior that comes from this particular family. All of these things God has brought together, bringing his people out of exile. All of these things in redemptive history come now to this one point that we read here in Luke chapter 2. That un, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And so if this is the beginning of the crescendo, if this is the beginning of the great peace of redemptive work that God is doing, that means that this is, that God is going to receive the highest glory possible. Because this is the coming of his Messiah. This is what everything throughout the history of mankind has been coming to this moment. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says this, The angel's doxology to God and congratulations of men upon this solemn occasion in verses 13 and 14. The message is no sooner delivered by one angel than suddenly there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Let God have the honor of this work. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God whose kindness and love designed this favor and whose wisdom contrived it. Other works of God are for his glory, but the redemption of the world is for his glory in the highest. Let men have the joy of it, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. If God be at peace with us, and all peace result from it, peace is here, put for all good. This is a faithful saying and well worthy of all exception that the goodwill of God toward men is glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Isaiah chapter 42 talks about how God gets all the glory. He doesn't share it with anyone. He doesn't share it with idols. He receives all the glory. And the result of God getting the highest glory in this instance is Jesus the Son coming to mankind to bring the completion of the redemption work. And that overflows to mankind as peace. As Galatians chapter 4 says, now, in this moment that we're reading, the fullness of time has come. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God in His goodness and mercy sent forth His Son, who was not born of ordinary generation, but was born of a virgin. And because his son was not born in sin, he is clean of sin, his record is clean, and he keeps his record clean because he obeys God's law. He is fully God and fully man. He obeys the law of God on our behalf in his active obedience. 
And in his passive obedience, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Just like the sheep and the little lambs on that hillside that the shepherds were tending, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but God laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. And Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust. And God imputes our sinfulness to him, and he nails our sin to the cross. And Christ dies and is raised on the third day for our justification. This is the great news of Christianity. That we are not that we are not left in our struggle. That we are not left in our sin. But God takes our sin and puts it on him and gives us his righteousness. Glory to God in the highest. That's what I'm saying. Glory to God in the highest. That is what that phrase means. Glory to God in the highest because of what he is, has done and is doing in the redemptive work. Now, the glory, this glory that goes to God in the highest overflows to us. And it says here, continuing in verse 14, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, originally, I wanted to take this phrase and kind of pull it apart and talk about peace and then talk about the second part. But as I was doing that, I quickly realized that this is actually one whole statement. And I know in other translations, it, you might have one in front of you right now, it says something different. Others will say, uh, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Or peace on earth uh, with whom, on whom his favor rests. Varying translations of the same Greek phrase, but it all is pointing to the same thing. The Eliakot uh, commentary says this, Men are the object of the goodwill and love of God. But I have to ask this question, because the, the text here is very specific. Is it all mankind because the text says on whom his favor rests or, or mine in the ESV says peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased the text is very specific there so is it all of mankind well in a sense I would say yes of course all mankind has the opportunity but I think we need to explore the specificness the specificity that's not a word either. <laughs> we need to explore why this text is specific there. So how do we know on whom his favor rests? How do we know? I'm so glad you asked. Turn with me to Psalm 90. Now, I, excuse me, 91. Now, I really wanted to come up with some kind of quippy way to transition into Psalm 91, and I just could not. So turn with me to Psalm 91. Because I think that, that Psalm 91 has the answer for us. And I'm going to read the whole thing. 
and then make a few comments. And again, I wish we had time to dig into this because there's so much good stuff here, but for right now, we'll just look at a few highlights. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that strikes in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Did you notice at the beginning and the end of this psalm, there are quotes. It begins in verse 2 with a quote and it ends in verse 14 through 16 with a quote. The first one, I think, is mankind speaking. Verse 2 says, I will say to the Lord, I will say to the Lord. So this is man speaking. My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then the quote ends. The rest of the psalm, up until verse 14 then, is the result, or what is... uh, delivered to the person who, say, who says that statement. My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then it ends with a quote. And I think this is the Lord speaking because of what it says. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy and show him my salvation. I think that's what it's talking about when it says, uh, goodwill towards men on whom his favor rests. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. It is the one who cries out to the Lord and says, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. In in Luke chapter 2 verse 10, the angels say, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. It is the one who says, yes, that is me. I am a part of the people. 
I need the Lord. I need God to be my refuge. I need him to be my strength. And I will put my trust in him. That is with whom he is well pleased and his favor rests. Those who admit, who say, I need the Lord. And I think we we need to just take a moment and recognize that even that, being able to say that is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in our sins. John chapter 6 says no one, comes to the fa- no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. So even the fact that we can say, I need the Lord, I need God to be my refuge, is a gift from him. Now there is one thing that I want to point out in Psalm 91, a kind of a, a, a little bit of a snag, something we need to keep our eye out for. And this has to do with peace. The, the end part here. I don't know if you noticed, but Psalm 91, verses uh, 11 and 12, that is what Satan quoted to Jesus during the temptation. Satan takes Jesus up to the highest point of the, the temple, I believe it was, and he says, throw yourself off, because the scripture says... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, you, they will bear you up, lest, your foot, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's, that's the verse that he used, the verses he used. And he used it. His, the devil's interpretation of that is, you know, if you trust in the Lord, he won't even let you stub your toe. As basically what, what this is saying. If you put your trust in the Lord, you won't even stub your toe. In other words, if you trust in the Lord, you'll never have any trials, never have anything bad happen to you, no suffering at all. If you trust in the Lord, only good things will happen. That's the devil's interpretation. Essentially, that's what he was saying to Jesus. And the snag for us is there are many in the church who believe that. And I admit, there are many in my generation who believe that. Because, and the reason I say that is because we are seeing this movement called deconstruction. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically those who grew up in the church are walking away, they're deconstructing their faith. They're walking away from their faith because this is their theology. That if I do all the right things and I follow God in, in, in every way and I do everything right, he'll never let anything bad happen to me. Not realizing that most of the New Testament talks about suffering. Paul mentions it in, I think, almost every one of his books, maybe except for 1 Timothy. There will be suffering. But what this psalm is saying, it's not saying if you trust in the Lord, nothing bad will ever happen. It's saying if you trust in the Lord, he will be with you in the good and the bad. 
no matter what, you can take shelter in him. I mean, just look at the words that are used. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That indicates that there's something gnarly going on behind us. It talks about arrows flying and 10,000 men coming at you. The psalm is saying bad things are going to come. But for those who say, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust, he will be with you. He will be your shelter. He will be your refuge. And my friends, we realize that in 2023 because of what we read in Luke chapter 2. That for unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And because Christ has come to finish the redemptive work of God, he gets all the glory the highest glory possible, and that spills over to mankind in peace and joy. And for those who cry out to him, who say, you are my God and my fortress in whom I trust, we have peace. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but when I look out at the world today, there ain't nothing to be peaceful about <laughs> But because Christ came, we have peace. Because we can take our refuge in him. Not only do we have peace in a chaotic world, but we have peace with God because he has taken our sin away and given us his righteousness. And so let me just close by encouraging you this Advent season, make that the focus. That God receives the highest glory because Christ has come. And because Christ has come, we have peace. And we can run to God. We can say, you are my God, my refuge, my fortress in whom I trust. And we can take shelter in him in the midst of whatever this world is going to throw at us. Let's pray together. Father, we give you the glory in the highest for your love for us, for your mercy, for sending your Son when the time was right, for sending your Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. But not only did he take away our sin, you gave us his righteousness so that we could have peace with you. And Lord, we are so grateful and we are so humbled at your goodness and your kindness towards us. God, I pray this season, this Advent season, that you would write it on the tablet of each of our hearts. Glory to God in the highest. That we would remember, we would use this time to remember the coming of the Messiah and what you have done through Jesus for us. 
We praise you, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I'm not sure what the hymn number is, so I'm going to let Becky tell you, but everyone stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. Disregard the number in your, in your bulletin. We are going to turn to 144, How Great Our Joy, which I think is very fitting given Josh's um, sermon here. One and two, verses one and two. Show me. 